Okay, I don't know what just went on with the opening narration there. Um, hi, I'm the Space Quest Historian. And I'm not gonna lie, this episode has been a long while in the making. And yes, the more astute listeners will no doubt have noticed that it's now been a full four weeks since the last episode, as opposed to the regular two weeks. Holy crap, has it really been that long? Um, yes. Yes, it has. And the reason for that is, well, truthfully, quite dull. But I'll get to that in a bit. See... What we're going to be talking about here today in this episode is fan fiction. Yes, it's a dreaded phenomenon that's subject to much ridicule on the internet, and deservedly so, since most fan fiction efforts seem to amount to little more than narcissistic indulgences that are so unforgivably subpar in comparison to its source material that it frequently leaves you weeping for the state of humanity. And Space Quest has been no exception from this scourge. But, of course, if you ask me, Space Quest fanfics were just a teensy-weensy cut above the rest, in that they were actually quite inventive and creative, and not just flimsily disguised pornographic garbage where the author injects himself into the story and somehow ends up banging Zandra and the latex babes in their underground fortress. In fact, some of us back in the day got so carried away with dreaming up our own scenarios for Roger Wilco and the Space Quest universe that we actually set about writing full-length novels. Well, I say novels. Turns out that a novel has to be over 40,000 words to technically count as a novel. So, strictly speaking, the Space Quest fan novels don't actually count as novels per se, but rather than get hung up on technicalities and start calling them really, really long-ass stories, I'm just going to call them novels, even though it's technically inaccurate. Cool? Cool. So, right. Back in the day, some of us diehard Roger fans got so hung up on making our own stories that a handful of novels were written. And when I say some of us, I actually mean myself and my good friend Daniel Stacy. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because the man actually went on to put his fanfiction ability to good use by writing AGD Interactive's remakes of King's Quest 2 and 3. Oh, and he's also got he, he, got, he went on to write uh, Alamo and The Lost Dutchman's Mine and the upcoming Mages Initiation, both by Himalaya Studios, uh, the latter of which was funded by a Kickstarter, recently got greenlit on Steam, so good on them for that. Anyway, uh, Dan and I, being the precocious little dwarfs that we were back in the late 90s, decided to try and write novelizations of the entire Space Quest series, as well as a few original tales of our own. Uh, now, in all honesty, the series novelization idea didn't really get that far, for reasons I will get into shortly, but we did end up with a complete novelization of Space Quest 1, The Saren Encounter, plus three sort of original stories set in the Space Quest universe, all clocking in at somewhere around, oh, let's say a million pages each. Like I said, they weren't really novels, but they sure felt like it at the time. And this brings me to why this podcast was so late, because in preparation for this onslaught of fan-made fiction, I had enlisted the services of professional radio announcer Joe Casara to read excerpts of these novels in his pleasant voice, because I figured if you're going to sit through this somewhat narcissistic endeavor, the least I could do is find a pleasant voice to read it aloud instead of my own scrapey nasal whine. But, wouldn't you know it, the poor lad got sick right around the time of the deadline, and his vocal cords went eh uh-uh, and all of a sudden his voice didn't sound all that pleasant anymore. So, in what can only be described as a series of cosmic unfortunates, uh, I also ended up getting sick, and, and being completely overwhelmed by real life matters, so the podcast ended up falling a bit by the wayside. 
And my apologies to the two or three of you out there who are actually looking forward to this, but that's all behind us now, and we are ready to get jiggy with some Space Quest fanfiction. So, what I've got in store for you now is a comprehensive journey down this road, complete with professionally read excerpts that I hope will... Well, actually, I'm not really sure what kind of hopes I have with this. I guess I just want to highlight a time of our fandom lives when we were so caught up with Space Quest that we had so much free time on our hands that we would actually sit down and write comprehensive long-form stories set in this universe, because that universe, to us, was, well, just so damn awesome. Now, we're not just going to hear about the novels that were completed, uh, specifically, that would uh, entail the Space Quest 1 novelization and the two Futures History novel that Daniel wrote, which are set in the Space Quest 12 universe, and the Lone Voyager novel that I co-wrote with my pal Leonard that's set in the Space Quest 6 universe. Um, I've also got a special treat for the next episode. Yes, we're pulling a two-potter, ladies and janitors. For the first time, we're going to hear bits from the unfinished novels of Space Quest 3, The Pirate's Pestilon, and Space Quest 5, The Next Mutation which, to the best of my knowledge, have yet to see the light of day before now. And I'll be putting up links to all of these on my website, spacequesthistorian.com, so you can download these PDFs. Um, and yes, the unfinished ones too. So, strap yourselves in, lads, get out your headphones, light some candles, pour yourself a nice glass of wine or Coronian ale or something, because, well, here we go. First off, I'm gonna get a bit narcissistic on your asses, because we're kicking things off with the first novel that was completed, this novelization of Space Quest I, The Saren Encounter. In 1997, when I was just 17 years old and having a miserable time as a freshman in Danish high school, I would spend my recesses in the computer lab, instead of making friends, writing away at this immense Word document for, well, I guess, no other reason than it seemed like a better use of my time than socializing with people who didn't seem to like me at all. Not that I blame them, though, because let's be honest, Mo wants to be seen hanging around the guy who's unable to carry on a conversation about anything other than his favorite adventure game. Um, but anyway, what came out was a novel that actually stuck pretty closely to the original game, with a few liberties taken to spice up the narrative a bit, since uh, Roger's pretty much for his own uh, uh, most of the game. So for those brief moments where he actually has someone to interact with, I milked those parts for all they were worth. Such as this scene in the rocket bar on Corona, where Roger sells his skimmer for a jetpack and two bar coupons. The bar was a seedy place, just as Roger had suspected. The main bar in the corner was tended to by a single bartender, who looked like a cross between a boar and an orc. The customers around the bar took up six of the seven bar stools available. The rest of the clientele were sitting around some of the small tables, strewn around the floor, or in one of the four booths on the back wall. The centerpiece was a small, round, elevated stage with flashing lights serving as the floor and even more flashing lights as the ceiling. On it were two strange-looking humanoids in black suits with ties, cranking out some surprisingly catchy tunes. One was skinny, the other looked like the after-effects of a company Christmas lunch. The skinny one stuck to dancing, a very epileptic version of tap dancing, and occasionally playing a harmonica into the microphone while the other one sung in a weird alien language. The walls of the bar were decorated with photos of the planet, a few pieces of what someone might call art, and the occasional hurl stain. The room was crowded, to say the least, but oddly enough, a lot of the people preferred to stand up rather than occupy the empty stool. Hey, look at the action that just walked in! A figure at the bar proclaimed softly to the guy beside him, 
They both glanced in the direction of the door through which Roger had just entered. Nice biped material, huh? The first thing Roger took notice of was the empty bar stool in the far right corner. He went up, removed his cracked and relatively useless space helmet, and took a seat. After a few minutes, the bartender decided to devote some of his attention to Roger. What do you have, kid? He grumbled. Uh, Roger staggered. The idea of ordering a soda pop suddenly seemed like a stupid idea. He'll have a slug of ale, Grud, the guy next to him cut in. Put it on my tab. The bartender looked like he was just about to ask, what tab, but was discreetly waved off by the guy. The bartender reached under the counter and produced a large pint glass, which he filled up with ale from a counterfix tap. He pushed the drink in front of Roger. The glass looked like it was about to melt. Roger just stared at it. Go on, give it a slurp, the guy next to him said. Roger caught sight of the man's photonic discharger in his pocket and decided when a tough guy wants to buy you a drink, the best thing to do is probably let him. Seriously expecting his gut to explode into a million soggy pieces, Roger put the glass to his lips and began pouring the liquid down. The guy next to him helped him with taking an enormous slug of the pint until the glass was almost empty. Roger slammed the near-empty pint glass down onto the bar and sighed heavily. He felt like he had just swallowed a dead beaver. It's good, isn't it? The guy next to him grinned. Roger felt that was an issue open to debate. Allow me to introduce myself, the man continued. My name is Carfton Bleem. He reached into his coat and produced a small-sized business card, which he handed to Roger. After bringing his vision into focus, Roger took a glance at the card. Carfton Bleem, Uginok Sector. The rest of the card had been fighting a battle with a greasy stain of unknown origin and apparently lost. I am a representative of the Irnon Garbage Disposal Committee. It's my job to assure that we keep the planets in the Irnon system and surrounding neighborhood systems clean and tidy, and if all possible, attempt to restore any of the junk that may have been tossed out. We buy scrap, basically. Our facility on the planet Karnas can restore almost any Zazarian cruiser to perfect working order, with only a few spare parts needed. Well, that was all mighty fascinating. Now I'll get right to the point, Mr... He left this hanging in the air, waiting for Roger to say his name. Wilco, Roger replied, after a little pause. He'd been contemplating whether he should make up a name or use his own. Roger Wilco. Well, Mr. Wilco, I just arrived here a few hours ago, and my ship scanners detected your skimmer being destroyed in the desert. Now, a skimmer like that may be small, but its collective fuel content and gas distribution can cause serious damage to this planet's ecosystem. Roger wasn't following. The guy could have been speaking Hebrew as far as he was concerned. He nodded, faking an understanding. I'd like, if I may, to purchase the wreck and attempt to restore it back on Karnas. I'm sure we can work out a deal that will be mutually beneficial for both our parties, Carfton grinned. What's your proposal? Roger found himself saying. Did he really just say that? Well, I do seem to be a bit short on cash, but may I offer you a trade? He asked while reaching into his coat pocket. I have here... Mm, let's see, 
He pulled out a small backpack equipped with what looked like thrusters. A portable jetpack in perfect working order. It was previously owned by a little trell who only used it to fly back and forth to Fleabutt on alternate Sundays. And it works great in zero gravity, too. You'll love it! He gave the jetpack to Roger to hold while he once again reached into his coat pocket. I realize that's not enough of a compensation for your fine piece of ju- I, I mean vehicle, so here I have... He produced two small cards from his pocket, which he also handed to Roger. These discount coupons. One of them is for this establishment. It'll provide you with five buckazoids and a free beer. No charge. And the other is for the Droids BS Chains. It gives you a 20% discount on all purchases, if I'm not mistaken. Now, with all these things considered, I think we have a square deal. What do you say? Roger wasn't sure exactly what he was getting into, but before he could blink twice, he just closed a deal with Carf Dan Bleem and was now two coupons and a jetpack richer, but one skimmer poorer. Oh, what the hell, it wasn't his skimmer to begin with, and it wasn't in very good shape either. It'd probably make some sod happy. It was nice doing business with you, Carfton concluded as he grabbed his belongings, a trench coat and hat, and proceeded to head for the exit door. Hope I'll meet you again. Real suit. His path was suddenly blocked by two rather large alien individuals who were obviously displeased with something. Carfdan backed away. It seemed like there was recognition between him and the newly arrived party. All noise in the bar suddenly died out. Everyone's attention was directed toward the three fellows in the doorway. You! One of the goons burled. Roger was surprised, but not only because he'd just sold a skimmer that wasn't his for two coupons and a jetpack, nor that the skimmer's new owner was about to get his can thoroughly creased by two goony-looking alien types, but from the looks of these guys, he was surprised they even had the power of speech. They looked like typical nightclub bouncers in comparison, all brawn, no brains, and when that's coupled with bad temper, as in this case... That's generally a very bad combination. <laughs> That's right, Carfton replied and tried to flash a grin, hoping he'd get the two goons to laugh. Fat chance. He backed away and was seemingly trying to hide behind one of the tables, which had been hastily abandoned by the former occupants. Uh, now, Carfton attempted, I know that you're upset about our last deal, but surely we can... The rest of his carefully planned speech was interrupted when one of the goons smashed his fist into the table. Carfton was trying to hide behind, which promptly broke into two pieces. Carfton decided one couldn't reason with these guys. He'd try a different approach. "'Holy crud, what's that?' he suddenly yelled and pointed to the doorway. It was the oldest and most stupid trick in the book, but Progress apparently hadn't visited the goons' home planet yet, as they stupidly glanced over their own shoulders to see what Carfdan was pointing to. Carfdan took an athletic jump over the decapitated table, grabbing hold of the two goons' heads to give him leverage. He managed to jump to the other side, jumping between the two goons' heads, who were unable to figure out what the hell was going on. Before they knew any better, Carfdan had landed behind them and was making a break for the door. The two goons went into immediate pursuit. A photonic discharge struck the side of the door and narrowly missed the elbow of one of the goons. He stayed behind while the other one raced through the only slightly wider doorway. He rounded the corner and was out of Roger's vision. 
two, three more shots from Karfdan's charger and a large thump. One down, one to go. The other goon stared stupidly at the doorway, almost as if he was under the delusion that it was attacking him. After staring at it for a few moments, he managed to accumulate enough courage to race through the door and set into heavy pursuit. The sound of a spaceship taking off was audible from outside, and several blasts could be heard. Roger couldn't really see any of it except the red beams flying across the doorway. He could then see a brown ship flying north at its maximum impulse velocity, a ship which he assumed must have been Karfdan's. It continued to zoom into the horizon until something exploded on one of the engines and caused the ship to make a neat 90-degree flip in the air. The ship was out of control and was dangerously speeding near the surface. After a little while, Karfdan's ship disappeared behind the structures of Yulin's Flats, and a short moment later, a bright flash came from behind one of the shops. He'd made it beyond the force field, but seemingly, one of the goons' discharge blasts had hit a critical point of the engines and caused it to short-circuit. Roger sat back with his two coupons and jetpack. Without thinking, he reached for his newly refilled pint glass and took a remarkably large swig off it. It only took two seconds for him to realize that his mouth was about to melt. Not knowing what else to do with it, his reflexes caused him to spit out the contents onto the floor. At first, he thought he was going to get in trouble for that, but seemingly, no one noticed. Apparently, that was normal behavior here. Roger turned around to the bar, placed his elbows on it, and decided it was time for a soda pop. He called the attention of the bartender. One glance made him reconsider once again. The bartender was awaiting his order, though not in sheer anticipation. Out of complete stupidity, Roger ordered a refill. His mug came back, once again sizzling with the red liquid. The bartender looked at him, waiting for him to take a slug. Roger didn't know what he was supposed to do. He took a small sip of the drink and forced him to swallow it. The bartender smiled sincerely, his eyes saying, That's the spirit, drink on! And then turned his attention to other customers. Half an hour later, Roger was on his seventh beer. In all of history, the only time Roger had had more than seven beers was at the Welcome Y'all party back on the Arcada, and he preferred not to think of that at the moment. A few minutes before, a space pilot had walked through the door to the bar. He had a very nervous look about him. He sat down and after a few beers had begun spinning his story, Roger managed to catch some of their conversation. I'm telling you, never go to Sector HH. I repeat, never. You won't believe what I just saw a few hours ago. You know what I just saw? You know what I just saw? This gigantic, green, ugly-looking mother bugger of a battle cruiser was thumping through the sector, right? And me and my little one-passenger cruiser honey out there, we just kept our distance, you know, to see what was going to happen. He took another swig of beer, sighed deeply, ordered a refill, and continued. So, without warning, the cruiser then stops completely, from going at like two impulse a minute to nothing at all. Right in front of him, see, is his planetoid, right? You know the one, don't you? He appeared to be addressing a fellow sitting next to him. They seemed to be old friends. The friend mumbled something, and the pilot agreed, Yep! Berinium was its name. Small, non-atmospheric, basically no use at all. Then the cruiser shoots this, like, brilliant white flash of a beam out of the belly towards the planet. It was, like, huge, gigantic, monumentally colossal. And then the planet burst into flames. 
The crowd gasped and raised an eyebrow. Yep, the entire planet just lighted up. I'd never seen anything remotely like it. I'm telling you. I reached for the throttle and got the hell out of there real quick, I tell you. This was beginning to interest Roger. From the sound of it, this super weapon the pilot was ranting on and on about could very well be the stolen star generator. It had to be confirmed. Roger stood up from his stool and waited for the wobbling effects to subside. He cleared his head and went towards the pilot. Normally, he wouldn't have had the courage, but then he did consume eight pints of Coronian ale, and that's enough to get anyone slightly tanked. In Roger's case, who wasn't used to drinking a lot of alcohol, it had been like consuming eight pints of concentrated acid. Excuse me, Roger began. He had fought his way through the crowd and was now standing directly beside the seated pilot. Yeah, what do you want, kiddo? The pilot replied, grinning slightly, and consumed the rest of his beer. Grud! Refill! The bartender took his pint, refilled it from the tab, and placed it in front of him again. He took a slight sip from the glass and then turned to Roger. Go on, spill it. Well, about this ship, um, did it look like, well, a large green mosquito with white domes on the headpiece and four large engines on the rear? To this date, Roger was amazed he could actually remember that much from a ship he'd only seen a few seconds. The pilot went back into his paranoid self and nodded slightly. Yeah, what you know about him? What sector did you say it was again? Roger asked, agitated. It was a Sarian battlecruiser that attacked the Arcada. It had to be. Each, each, the pilot replied slowly. Can you get me a ride there? Uh, look, kid, I'd, I'd rather not. I had some pretty bad experiences with that place, and uh, it's a matter of galactic importance, Roger found himself shouting. Nanoseconds later, he realized how stupid that had sounded. Sorry, kid, the pilot apologized and took a quick swig off his beer. But I'd rather bathe naked in a pool of concentrated acid before going anywhere near that place again. Go ask Tiny. I'm sure he's got something you can use. Now, will you let me finish my story? Roger silently backed away from the crowd, who once again assembled around the pilot. He began telling the story from the beginning. The ale's intoxicating effect had all but vanished now. As Roger stepped out into the Coronian air... For the first time, he realized the planet Corona actually had a breathable atmosphere. Although the air from the bar wasn't exactly what the government health department would consider safe to breathe, it was still air, technically. And not once had it occurred to Roger that he was actually still wearing the spacesuit from the Arcada locker. He decided to concentrate on the current task. Now he knew where to go, which precise sector, and he'd even been referred to someone who could help him off this sorry orb. But who was this tiny fellow the pilot had referred him to? Just as he was pondering, he caught a glimpse of the neon sign behind the shuttles and small spaceships parked outside the space bar. It was a tribute to blatant tackiness, a blinking neon beacon symbolically taking the role as the one and only way out. It read, Honest Tinies. Not long after I'd finished the novel, I was having a chat with fellow Space Quest fan and writer Daniel Stacy, who had plans for his own take on the Space Quest universe, uh, and Dan was really interested in the post-apocalyptic time travel scenario of Space Quest 4, so he went ahead and wrote not one, but two novels with Roger Wilco's son, Roger Jr., as the main character. And uh, I'll let the man himself explain. And yes, Daniel is also acutely aware that these aren't technically novels, so he's chosen to call them short stories, which I guess they are, but I just like calling them novels. Anyway, take it away, Dan. Hi, I'm Daniel Stacy, 
an Australian teacher, adventure game fanatic, Doctor Who nut, and writer at Himalaya Studios. Long ago, in another life, I wrote some fanfiction. It was fun in a masochistic sort of way, and proved a semi-decent method of practicing my narrative skills. This foray into attempted prose eventually culminated in AGDI's King's Quest II Remake in 2002. So, in that sense, the Future's History short stories were arguably not a complete waste of time. I've been a fan of Space Quests since the series' third instalment, the one with the ruthless, bespectacled child, purple sand and exploding chickens, which was also my first ever adventure game. But it was the fourth, the one with the giant head, plastic women and psychedelic time warps, which fully captured my imagination. I soon found myself musing over the endless possibilities of Xenon's post-post-apocalyptic future. So I wrote some stuff. Just a couple of tales. I had promised a third to round out the intended trilogy, but considering it's now 17 years later, you can assume I somehow never got around to it. Alright, fine. I couldn't be stuffed. But hey, you never know. Show me Space Quest 7, and I might consider it. Trolls asked me to detail the plots of both these ancient stories. Well, I'll tell you. I can't remember either of them all that well. It did have something to do with Roger Wilco's son, his best friend who turns out to be a failed Vahal clone, the rebuilding of Xenon, the mystery surrounding the fate of Roger and Beatrice, questionable wordplays and some inappropriate language. Hey, I was young. If you do want to know more and consider stories about sparkling vampires to be the examples of high-end literature, then you might just enjoy the twin turds that was the Future's History Saga. In any case, thanks for listening. Back to you, trolls. Thanks. Uh, Future's history takes place in the Space Quest 12 universe, which was glimpsed in the Space Quest 4 game. And like I said, the protagonist is actually Roger's son, Roger Jr., whom Daniel refers to as Raj throughout the series. Um, and the sequel police are referred to as Spoles, you know, S police, Spoles, yeah. Um, and here's a part of the novel which expands on the scene from Space Quest 4, in which Roger Jr. is captured by the sequel police and dumped at the feet of Vohal's giant holographic head. Yes, spoiler alert, uh, Vohal takes control of Roger's body, letting Raj get a taste of what it's like to be hooked up to a giant evil supercomputer. Time has very little meaning when one's inside a supercomputer. You can't get hungry, tired or sick. You can't gain weight, suffer from hair loss or experience sexual dysfunction. You can stay up as long as you like. Read for years on end without experiencing fatigue, and in filling out your tax returns, you don't have to include information regarding your race, gender, sexual orientation, or preferred coffee blend. You can, however, lose all sense of the fourth dimension. Raj really had no idea how long he'd been going through all the near-endless information available to him. It was odd that Vohal was allowing him access to all this info, but so long as he was permitted... Raj would keep on digging around. Of course, he would occasionally come across some data that he was not permitted to view, but that seemed to relate mostly to Vohal's personal history, a subject Raj didn't feel inclined to look into anyway. Speaking of the mad former scientist, Vohal would upload himself into the, supercom into the supercomputer now and again to check on reports from his spoles or to see what Raj was looking up. Each time, Raj made sure it was nothing that would make the manic one suspicious. The Spoles reports were usually brief. Nothing to report in this time sector. 
Apparently his father, having arrived safely in this time period, had managed to steal a time pod and had headed God knew where or when, and the Spoles had been dispatched to find him. For the most part, they had met with little or no success. But very recently, there had been some extensive reference to Sector SQ-10. Raj wasn't sure what that meant exactly, but guessed his father had failed to keep a low profile wherever and whenever he was. Presently, Raj was sorting through the files of the deceased, modified and converted, all victims of the war, one way or the other. Vohal was out at the moment, doing whatever it was he wanted to do with Raj's body. Hopefully, it was all legal. So Raj was taking the opportunity to make a few small, risky endeavors. Specifically, he was searching for information on his parents. The odd part was, he couldn't locate anything on them in relation to their deaths. Of course, Volhall had quite an extensive file on Roger Wilco, and not all flattering either. It largely contained pictures and official descriptions of the janitor by trade, with obscene pictorial and textual additions to most of them. Raj couldn't even look at what Volhall had illustrated on the full body shot of his father. A file on his mother existed as well, mainly documenting her diplomatic work in StarCon as an ambassador. There were vital statistics, information on everything, right down to both their DNA strands. The supercomputer had once been used as a gigantic database, but no information on how they died. Weird. This puzzled Raj. He'd seen them die, or at least thought he had. The memory came back, unsummoned. Four months ago, just after the war had started, Roger Wilco and his wife, Beatrice, had been on the verge of escaping the seriously damaged embassy building. His mother had been working there, coordinating the relief effort and evacuation strategy. His father had been working there, too, cleaning up the place. They were the last two evacuees. They had remained behind to make sure everyone else had escaped safely. But when it was their turn to evacuate, an overhang, overly stressed by excessive bombing which it had not been designed to tolerate, collapsed. The two were crushed instantly. His parents were dead. They had to be. Yet why hadn't this death been recorded in their files? Weren't the bodies found and cataloged? But then there was the question of why Volhall had used time travel in an attempt to kill Roger Wilco. It was a possibility he simply didn't know about the couple's deaths and needed to have the pleasure of killing his nemesis at some point in the space-time continuum. Then Raj remembered the hollow disk his mother had given him with the hollow picture of her and the message he was forbidden to replay until after his father had completed his time travel adventure. Completed it? If he survived it, that would be a miracle. Now he wished he had the hollow disk with him. Somehow he knew that if he viewed the disk, something would be revealed that would make things a lot clearer. Raj idled around inside the mainframe for a while, not looking at anything in particular. He started to think of Damien. What was he doing right now? Had he managed to get back to his own time? Raj hoped not. There wasn't anything left here to come back to. The best course of action would be to spend the rest of his life in the past. It was a lot nicer back then. For some reason, the supercomputer chose that moment to present some information for him. Funny, he hadn't requested any. He examined it and saw that it detailed one of the many disreputable projects which Vohol had been working on while he had been technically alive, many of which involved genetic manipulation. 
This particular file detailed an unborn child. There were correlating lines passing from the fetus to another illustration of what was unquestionably Vohal. Clearly, there was some connection between the two, but what? There were diagrams of comparable DNA sequencing, examples from both Vohal and the baby, side by side. And then it hit him. Vohal's genetic code and that of the fetus were identical, right down to the last strand. Vohal had recreated himself as a child. By the use of cloning, a forte of Vohal's, he had recreated his physical self perfectly. Hair color, eye color, potential height, and weight would all be reproduced, though obviously the clone would turn out better due to the absence of self-damaging experiments. Raj shook his head in bewilderment. What had Vohal possibly hoped to gain in cloning himself? The madman had apparently once cloned thousands of zombies in one of his many plans to take over Xenon, but this was different. Cloning himself? The file read that the infant would be expected to grow in size as normal Xenonians do, but would attain physical strength faster than its peers. Cognitive development was also expected to be significantly more rapid in the early stages. Raj noted the file was dated 26 years ago. Something about that date rang a bell, but it was too abstract and out of the blue to make a match with any of his information. The file also read that the child would be expected to have a superior intelligence and was sure to be a willing and able soldier upon maturity. It is the intention of this experiment, the file read, that the subject should possess an inherent, almost unquenchable craving for the annihilation of other beings. So that was it. Vohal had once planned to create highly intelligent, physically superior clones of himself. That way, he'd know precisely how they ticked and could manipulate them all the more efficiently. But fortunately, the experiment did not appear to have been successful, as it had never progressed past the prototype stage. At least there had only been one of these killer creatures, but one was still one too many. Interestingly enough, nowhere in the file did it mention what happened to the baby, not even a reference to it having ever been born. Raj felt it safe enough to assume that the prototype had been deemed a failure and therefore destroyed. As Raj was skimming over some of the finer points, he noted a name, Dr. Sig Fried. Raj was just sending the data back where it came from when two things occurred simultaneously. Firstly, Raj realized with horrific amazement why the 26-year-old date on the file had meant something to him, why the computer had presented that file when it had, why the face of Vohal had seemed vaguely reminiscent of another he knew, the clone, an entity which had been specifically bred to do nothing but kill, was very much alive. Secondly, Vohal returned, clearly full of anticipation. He's back. Who? And all thoughts of babies, clones, and time evaporated. <clears throat> now, Daniel didn't just do one book on this. The first Futures History novel was uh, finished in 1997, the one you've just heard, uh, the same year that I finished my Space Quest 1 novel. And a year later, Dan had written a sequel, imaginatively titled Futures History 2. Roger Jr. and his wife Michelle has a daughter named Safia, and there's a couple of Vohal clones running around, and the crew from Space Quest V make an appearance, and there's also a dude named John Lick Hisos, which Dan isn't terribly proud of. 
the story gets really quite complicated and it's uh, hard to give a summary without spilling all the beans. Um, but for instance, here's a scene where one of Vohal's clones, Damon, has decided to fight with the resistance instead of the supercomputer and arrives at the time when the supercomputer is about to wreak havoc on Roger's home planet of Xenon. Damon materialized in a side street, away from the public view. Normally he wouldn't give a crap about risking an encounter which might alter the future in some way. But considering it was his future in this case, he decided discretion was indeed the better part of common sense. He checked the time. 13 minutes to go. Not bad. But not that good either, since he had to find Raj before the guy went and did something stupid. Wend had thoughtfully provided him with a digital timekeeper, based on her calculations on Xenon time as seen from orbit. She also predicted a rough estimate as to when the embassy building would collapse, to the nearest ten thousandths of a second. Wend had apologized for not being more accurate. He told her not to worry about it. Of course, the Spole attack would begin shortly before anything collapsed. Those cybernetic morons had taken everyone by surprise. It was one thing to demolish military and tactical areas. People had had the sense to stay clear of those while they were waiting to be evacuated. Today, however, the possessed supercomputer had begun, would begin, a new strategy for exterminating its hated race, attacking civilian sites. This, of course, included the embassy building that Raj's parents would be in at the wrong time. Damon wished for the zillionth time that he didn't share the same lineage as that monster behind the madness. If it had been any other planet, in any other time period, Raj would have been easy to detect from the Mallard. But because the exceptionally high electromagnetic interference, presumably emanating from the supercomputer, he was just another Xenonian blimp on the ship's scanners. So Damon had volunteered to go get him, deeming Wend to be too much of a standout, maybe a more likely target. Not wasting any time, he took a number of side streets and alleyways, largely relying on his exceptional memory to guide him. The layout was two years old, after all, and Xenon looked different now, would look different, thanks to the redevelopment efforts. Even with his good memory, he knew the wrong turn could seriously cost him vital minutes. Still, with twelve and a half minutes to go before the surprise attack, he remained optimistic he'd get there in time. Raj panted heavily as he tore down the main street, People hurrying to and fro to keep from attracting unwanted attention from the Spoles stared at him as he bore past them, wide-eyed, towards the embassy building. He didn't care what people thought of him, didn't care if he was making an impact on their lives, altering the course of history in some small way, affecting, changing his future. All he cared about was getting to that embassy building and saving his parents. He didn't care that it wasn't rational. He didn't care that it might be a universal impossibility considering collapsing buildings tend to be fatal no matter how many individuals are under it. The crimson skies seemed to match his present mood. At least it felt that way, with all the blood rushing to his face. In the back of his mind, some voice told him that the attack would soon start. Then his time would suddenly become limited. He stopped suddenly. He was standing at an intersection. The occasional speeder zoomed past at an astonishing rate. He forced himself to breathe slower, to collect himself, this can't be happening, he told himself. I can't possibly be losing my way. Yet if that weren't the case, then why was this area completely unfamiliar to him? Don't panic. Just look sharp. You'll see something that will help you. Look for a landmark. Look, damn you! And then he saw it. A spire poking up from the other tall buildings. 
Only one building had such a spire, and he just happened to be headed its way. Talk about luck. He raced onwards, his mind flooded with bubbling images of happy reunions and a changed future. Groff. Damon stopped. Spinning around, he saw nothing. Funny, he could have sworn he heard... Groff. That noise. Looking carefully, he saw some shadows dancing from the street grate he'd just passed. Checking to make sure no bystander was observing, he walked over tentatively to the grating and peered downwards. Who's that? he asked. Damon, came a female voice. Seeing no reason to lie, he replied, Yeah? Get down here now! Damon complied, without really thinking. A most uncharacteristic thing for him, considering he wasn't at all overwhelmed by anger at this time. Once he dropped down into the sewer pipe below, he instantly recognized the one who had spoken. It was Michelle. Startled, he nearly cried out her name, happy to see she was all right. But he shut himself up before he could say anything. Come on, Damon, think. That's not really her. Well, it is, but not the Michelle we are trying to rescue at the moment. This one doesn't belong. Well, she does. That is, I don't belong. On the other hand, I do, but not the Mimi. He stopped himself short when his already enhanced brain was threatening to melt. He noticed another standing behind Michelle, in the shadows. Then he recognized her, and a pain seemed to press on his chest. Caroline. He couldn't believe it. Here she was, again, just as he remembered her. Her light brown hair shined even under this filtered light and in this filthy air. Carol had been Michelle's best friend. He'd never found out what had happened to her. She just disappeared one day, and that was that. He couldn't even remember the day it happened. Damon's resistance cell members assumed Carol was either captured and modified, made into one of the spoles, or she had a far more merciful death at the hand of a laser rifle. Instant disintegration. Even though he had never admitted it, he'd considered himself her friend too, even if the reverse wasn't true. He just wished he could have told her so before she disappeared. Hi, he said to her, hoping she'd say something. Instead, Carol just acknowledged him with a curt, disinterested nod. What are you doing here? Michelle asked. Aren't you supposed to be back at base, helping to organize our new strike plan? Damon thought fast. In all likelihood, his counterpart in this time would be back at the rebel base, planning their next big move against the supercomputer and its legions. Of course, all those tactics soon changed after the attacks on civilians began. Afterwards, the tide had turned. The rebels were then always on the defensive, and it was all downhill from there. For a brief instant, he considered walking right into the base and introducing himself to himself. He could just imagine the surprised look on his own face, when he told him all the things he could tell himself, he could warn himself against upcoming pitfalls, problems, and discoveries, beforehand knowledge that would benefit him greatly. No, that was impossible, mainly because it hadn't happened in the first place. As for now, he had to alleviate his present self from his current situation. Uh, I know. I'm on my way there. There's just this errand I have to run first. I'll probably be there before you get back. That last statement was true enough anyway. He turned to hoist himself back up through the grate. You look different somehow, noted Michelle, stopping him. Thankfully, she hadn't noticed his clothes, which he'd only bought a few weeks previous, in his time. Carol, on the other hand, was eyeing him strangely. Must be my new hairdo. I'll see you later. And up he went, back into the streets above, before either of the women could say anything more. 
Running, he checked his watch. Six minutes, 32 seconds. Damn, that's it. No more time for any stops. If Raj gets anywhere near his parents, then we can kiss our continuum goodbye. Come on, gotta stay optimistic here. Maybe I'll get lucky and Raj will change his mind. Raj wasn't about to change his mind. Somehow he would find a way to save his parents. If that meant sacrificing himself in the meantime, then so be it. That vivid image was foremost in his mind. He had seen the collapse. He'd been only meters away helping with the civilian relief effort when the embassy's structural supports, after extensive bombing-related ground tremors, gave in. He peered into the main marbled columned entrance to see if any more people were still inside. And that's when he'd seen them. Roger Sr. and Beatrice, his parents. His father had been supporting B, his wife, who'd obviously damaged her leg in some way. The injury was slowing them both down, but that hadn't concerned his father. He was totally focused on getting her out of there. Nothing else mattered. It was in those last few seconds that Raj and his father had made eye contact. What those older eyes said in that far too brief exchange would stay with Raj forever. He'd seen a desperate plea for help. That's why he had to save them now. He had to, somehow. It didn't matter that he might be altering some stupid timeline. Lives were far more important than hypothetical continuity, weren't they? He came up to the embassy building's entrance. The white stone shone deceptively, cheerfully in the early afternoon sun. This was it. His parents were in there. All he had to do was get to them and get them out of there and... A high-pitched sound soared from above like a number of approaching aircraft. That meant only one thing. No! Realizing he didn't have much time, he bolted into the embassy building and began his frantic search. Moments later, the bombs started to fall on civilian buildings for the first time. Again. Ooh, spooky, huh? And that is it, ladies and janitors, for this week's fan fiction theater. Um, I am going to keep teasing you, however, because next episode, we're going to be listening to uh, The Turd That Is Lone Voyager, a novel that I co-wrote with my good friend Leonard. We thought we were very clever at the time. It turns out we weren't. Um, and also, as the special treat, we're going to be listening to the unfinished Space Quest 3 and Space Quest 5 novels. Um, and you're, if you're interested in reading these novels for yourselves, uh, please check in at the thespacequesthistorian.com without the the, it's just spacequesthistorian.com, uh, where I'll be posting links to where you can download these morsels of fan creativity. And come next episode, I'll also put up the unfinished Space Quest 3 and 5 novels in their entirety. Meaning, of course, the state that they were in before they were abandoned, but yeah. That's all to come in two weeks' time. Oh, and wait, there was one more thing. Um, our uh, good friend Pete Tolman, CEO, <laughs> sorry, co-CEO of Prabic Mountain, since Serena Nelson now owns half the company. Can't wait to hear how that's been going. Um, anyway, Pete told me on Twitter to uh, check my answering machine. He said he had something interesting for me concerning this whole fan fiction thing. So uh, let's uh, see what he's got for us. Hey Tro, it's uh, Pete Tolman, Private Mountain Games. Uh, I heard the last episode, and uh, well, the less said the better. But uh, you mentioned that the next one was going to be on fan fiction, um, and people might think that I hated the Space Quest games, but I actually loved them, and I've got my own fan fiction. So uh, it's all based on Roger Wilco, and I thought I would read you a bit. 
and then maybe you can put it on your little show thing just in case uh, nobody turned up again, right? <laughs> anyway, <coughs> it was a dark, cold night. Roger walked through the street alone, hoping to get back to his flat. A soul car drove past. It was pastel blue. It was a Fiat 850, meaning Roger knew he must have been sent back in time, most likely to between 1964 and 1973, because the 850 looked quite new, and they ceased production of that model in the mid-1970s and replaced it with the Fiat 127. He found his building, jiggled his keys, and went in. In his apartment, he had loads of space stuff. You know, the kind of stuff a space person would have. You see, what you've got to do at this point, Tro, is you've got to, you've got to set the scene. Because there are people that might not know who Roger Wilco is. So what you do is, you know, you make it very clear that he's a spaceman by saying that there's space stuff. You know, that, that's right intro. Something you should try in the future. <coughs> anyway. <coughs> a picture of Mia Farrow from John and Mary, a really underrated film, was pinned to the door, again suggesting that we were in the late 60s or early 70s, since that film came out in 1969. The room was eerily quiet, possibly because the internet hadn't been invented yet, and he couldn't get Spotify to work. You see, I'm setting the tone here, Tro. We know that Roger's been moved to the past for some reason. That's why I've put all these details in about, you know, setting the scene, setting the tone, letting us know what kind of time period we're in. It's like I'm taking you to the, the time when this is, but I don't want to spoil it. He knew Beatrice was on this planet somewhere. Boom, you see, I'm giving you the reason why this is happening. The space finder thingy had beeped three times, which is how you know it's found something. He had to save her. What he wouldn't give to hold her in his arms again. Her silky skin, her hair, that vein that sort of ran down her right boob. Suddenly, he could hear something coming down the corridor outside. It sounded like Paranoid by Black Sabbath, indicating that it was probably late 1970, possibly early 1971, since the album was released slightly later in the United States. He followed the sound, and at the end of the hallway, there was a beautiful green goddess. Her skin was so green, it looked a little bit like the snot you get in your nose when it's, like, really dusty. She beckoned Roger to her, and they did it. Like, full-on did it. It was really cool with jiggling stuff and squirting stuff everywhere. <laughs> Um, well, I, I guess the tape ran out. Um, anyway, I think that's about as far as well, the Pope will let me. Um, personally, I was kind of intrigued by where he's going. And by intrigued, of course, I mean horrified beyond belief. But um, anyway, maybe there's a, a frightfully derivative game in the making there for an upcoming uh, Priapic Mountain game, perhaps. And, uh, then again, somebody already made Rex Nebular. Okay, I suspect we can now finally let go of this fanfiction thing for now and uh, get on with some of the other stuff we've got planned. Um, first of all, let's cool things down and have a commercial break. Real Rustic Universal Remote Control. Control the entire universe with one remote control. Open garage doors on other planets. Turn off crucial life support systems on passing spaceships. Terrify primitive cultures. 
requires one AAA battery, not included, 1,050 buckazoids. Sold out. Oh, that's a shame. Well, um, this is kind of one of those short episodes, uh, but I figured I'd do it, was, it was better to get back in the game. Uh, so one other thing that I'm going to teach you about for the upcoming episode is that we'll be checking back in with our good friend Chuck Clusterbluck, who is a reporter for the Zenonian Rebel Radio Militia, uh, a pirate radio uh, that uh, broadcasts out of the uh, Space Quest Twelve world. And I know what you're thinking. I thought it was a hoax, too, when I first heard it, but uh, Chuck seems to believe it anyway. Um, Chuck is uh, one of these... Uh, ace reporters in his own mind who has stolen one of the time guns that Roger Jr. brought back from the supercomputer and is now lost in the time stream because the time gun seems to go off at random intervals and Chuck has no idea how to work it which all works out very frustratingly for him and very hilariously for me because every time I check in on his shows it seems to intercept them and redirect them uh, back here so he doesn't actually get to transmit the shows back to his editor and since the dude's kind of a dick I take great pleasure in messing in with him in this way I don't know, that technically makes me the bad guy, but screw it. You, you should listen to some of the previous episodes. Trust me, the dude has it coming. So uh, that's all to come in the next episode. I'm sure that will be frightfully riveting. But um, for now, let's chill things down and listen to something pleasant for a while. Hi, this is Jim Wall, the creator of Sierra Online's Police Quest series. And you're about to have a listen to my friend, Chris Pope. Hello, everybody, and this is the Behind the Space Venture Scenes with Chris Pope segment. I am Chris Pope, your your host during this segment, the Space Pope, and uh, I'm excited to be back uh, with you guys. It's been a couple of weeks since the last episode aired. Um, yeah, we've had a had a lot of progress that's 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 been going on behind the scenes with Space Venture. Quite a few uh, puzzle related items that have gotten taken care of. Some new artwork that's been added. Uh, we've added some new game mechanics, some decisions that have been made uh, that that I think are going to make the UI much better. It's been it's been pretty good. Uh, I'm I'm very excited. Uh, you can't see me right now, but I got a smile on my face just because of the the progress that's been made uh, over the last few weeks with the game. Uh, just to kind of run through some of the things that I, I mentioned during the Kickstarter uh, updates, as well as to give you a little bit more information. One of the things uh, that that was kind of cool that you saw in a couple of couple of weeks back was a update we put out that involved uh, the explosion of the Nostradamus spaceship that you guys saw in the beginning of the demo. Um, that uh, that we've actually had that explosion done for quite a while now. It's just been kind of sitting there dormant. Uh, but most recently, Ken Allen, uh, our music guy, sound effects guy, the sound guy. Um, for our project has actually gone in and added some amazing sound effects to it. It uh, It's very Star Wars-esque-ish explosion of the Death Star scene kind of style, and we love it. Um, if you haven't already checked that out, go to our Kickstarter update page and, and take a look at the video. It looks really good. And there'll also probably also uh, be some music that's added to that when the game comes out, when you actually get to see that scene. But little bit of a spoiler there, but you kind of probably could tell it was coming considering the beginning of the game, there's people evacuating that ship right off the bat. Um, but uh, but check that out. Another thing we did that, that's, that was fun uh, in one of our last Kickstarter updates was we, we, we asked you guys 
101 uses for a frosty cup of Soylent Smoothie. Um, so yeah, the, the Soylent Smoothie uh, product that's going to be sold in our games, inside the, the, the digital world of our game, I should say, um, is, is a lot of fun. That was a, an idea for Mark Crow. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie Soylent Green, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you. But it, it's, an, it's an old movie, I think, from like the 1970s. You should check it out. Um, so you'll have an idea of what what all that's about. But we got some. We, we allowed you guys to submit your ideas for um, the 101 uses for Soylent Soylent Smoothie, and you can check that out on the SpaceQuest.net forum. So check that out if you haven't already, and add your ideas because they could show up in the game. We've already got the mechanic in the game that, that's going to allow that to happen. So if you guys will submit some choices, we're going to put. Um, put some of your choices, uh, some of your your feedback, some of your ideas, I should say, in the game. It's really cool. So uh, so ch- be sure to go and and do that if you have time. Um, in the most recent Kickstarter update, uh, I talked about more of the pipes puzzle, or as I like to call it, the pipes puzzle of Doom. Um, it uh, it we've uh, we've got a getting pretty close to having that scene done. Um, it's been my job extensively to work on that and get the mechanics uh, going. And Mark has supplied all the assets along with um, with our animation guy Mike Penny, uh, and we've also got a, a an intern that's been working with us on on getting the animations and stuff working for that scene. But uh, as I said in the Kickstarter update, we were having a, a team meeting, one of our weekly weekly meetings we have, um, and we were talking about that scene. And we used to have ladders in that scene. Uh, and we were we were trying to work out okay we're gonna run the animation of Ace going up the ladder we were deciding you know when the player how the player is gonna get to access the ladder they were gonna have to click the hand icon or the the walk icon or what what was gonna trigger them or if we were gonna make it where they just automatically knew to go to the ladder when when you clicked on something that was on either of the floors of the scene and uh, and Scott Murphy came up with a brilliant idea of adding. Um, Jetson-esque style tubes, uh, in other words, t- the kind of tubes that you'd always see in the cartoon known as the Jetsons, and of course, uh, everybody just loved that idea, and um, the next day, it was ridiculous how fast it happened, but Mark messaged me uh, and said, I got the tubes in the scene, and there they were, and uh, I worked on it for most of the day there between myself and Mark, and we, we got it rigged up, and it's working, and uh the animation looks great for it. We've got to do some touch-up and some polish, but it looks really cool. And if you check out the video that I've got posted on the um, on the uh, uh, Kickstarter update, of course, you can also go to our YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash AndromedaGuys, and check that out. And uh, and it's it's looking really good. We've uh, we've got a few things to it, and there is uh, we've hidden some things on that scene. There's going to be more to it than what you're seeing in the, the video, but but there's some spoilery stuff there that we didn't want to add. Uh, that that kind of there's a you know there's a huge story that's going on in Nostradamus. Um, you know why is it that when you get to when you when you get to the Nostradamus area of the game, which is you know probably a first I would say quarter of the game. Uh, when you're in that scene, why is it that the machine is exploding? Or the sorry, the scene, the the ship. Why is the ship exploding? What what's going on? And and why am I here? And what's going on? And so there's a big storyline that's going on. And you kind of got a hint at what was happening 
in the demo, when you go to the lab scene and you notice that there is a test tube that is uh, is broken, and there's a trail of of liquid that's going into the drain system of the ship. So, uh, you, if you played the demo or watched the, I did a commentary of the demo a while back. You can also check that out on the YouTube page. Uh, you'll see that, and uh, you kind of get a hint at what's going on. Um, there's still quite a few things that are happening that you 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 would probably don't have a clue about yet. But that is the first, uh, probably the first quarter of our game right there. Uh, just just that portion of the game and. We've got other scenes and stuff, obviously, for the game as well, but a lot we've had to go back and publish and, and polish uh, some of the beginning scenes. But we're, we're getting a lot of those uh, beginning scenes polished, and, and I still hope that, that uh, eventually we can put out a, a more polished version of our demo, but obviously that's not a uh, high priority. High priority right now is, is obviously getting through the game, <laughs> finishing up the game and uh, you know getting that out. But hopefully we'll have a... We'll have a estimated time of arrival for you guys on when the game is going to be ready uh, coming up. We definitely have a much better handle on things um, right now than we had in terms of the speed that we're able to get scenes done and uh, and all of that. And and again, now that the event system is is working really really well for us, and we're not constantly having to program everything, new things in the game, uh, we're able to, to to rig things up a lot faster and and move you know pretty quickly through things so it's uh, it's been great and uh, another thing we're working on we got another scene that's that we're working on right now that that I dubbed the boss fight <laughs> if you will um, and uh, there, this scene is massive there's like three levels to this scene it's like three scenes in one three three parts of the game in one really uh, where ace is is, is uh, battling something and um, there's a lot that goes into it, a ridiculous amount of mechanics, but uh, we're working on that right now, we're rigging the puzzle up. I just recently got all the assets that are needed for that, and I'm going to be working with Mark and uh, the uh, our other team, PCJ, and, and some others will be working on it with me, and uh, we'll hopefully have it knocked out um, relatively soon, so I'm really excited about that. That's That's been a, a massive... This, this is such a big scene that it's been held over our head for a while now. We've been kind of dreading, oh man, how are we going to how are we going to implement that? We don't have what we need, but we do. We finally have what we need for everything to do that scene, and it's coming together, and I'm super excited, and I can't wait to uh, to show you guys more of what's going on there. So, um, anyway, that is, uh, that's a look at what's been going on the last couple weeks with us. Um, as always, thank you guys so much for, for being a part of this. Uh, we're, we're super excited. You can get a hold of me on twitter.com slash thechrispope. Uh, Facebook.com slash the Chris Pope. You can email me at Chris at guys from Andromeda.com. I love, always love to get your feedback. Uh, we love hearing from you guys. We appreciate everything that you do in spreading the word. And um, thank you in general for everything, everybody. Back to you, trolls. Thanks. We have two pleasant people to introduce now. It is time for the final part of the three-part New Year's conversation between those gentlemen of rock, Brandon Bloom and Ken Allen. Will they find lost love? Will they defeat the evil alien overlords? Will we finally learn why Brandon can't play the tuba? Uh, spoiler alert, apparently it's because he has prosthetic lips. Actually, none of that is in store for you now, except for the uh, conversation between the... Uh, Gentlemen in a rug, Brandon Bloom and Ken Allen. So here it is, the scintillating third and final part of the Ken Allen Brandon Bloom show. Guys, take us into the sunset. 
Uh, okay. So we've talked about some movie music and and things like that. What? Just name five of your favorite movie underscores. Um, hmm. I used I used to have. There was a period of time when when uh, I'd register on different game forms and stuff, and they have that field where that lists your interests. And especially if it was a music-related form or a game-related form, or I'd, I'd list all these specific movies and their soundtracks that I love so much. And now I don't remember any of them. <laughs> um, Back to the Future, for sure. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith stuff was great. I especially liked Star Trek V. I loved that score. And uh, See, this is the Journey Home with the Whales? Nope. That was James. No, that was uh, Silvestri, wasn't it? Hmm. Did he do four or someone with a similar name? <laughs> Probably. Uh, no, five was Jerry Goldsmith. That was uh, the Final Frontier, the one with Kirk oh, on the right. mountain and right. and God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> William Shatner's That's magnum right. opus. Very strange movie, but an amazing soundtrack. Yeah. Um, I I even though there's. I, I tend to like gravitate to scores that have memorable themes to them instead of just being background. Um, but for some reason, I really liked the Matrix soundtrack, even though it wasn't really a lot of that. It was it was very hmm. interesting uh, composing work. Where uh, the way he described, I listened, I I sat down and listened to the um, commentary, his commentary, Don Davis, the composer's commentary of of the Matrix, straight through the whole movie. And he was describing the music cues he used and why and stuff. And the I like the way that um, he described and the way he, he accomplished. He would he would have the strings and the horns um, playing two different chords, and then he would fade one in and the other one out, and then fade the other one out and the other one in, and kind of be mirroring back and forth. And he did that to kind of reflect the. He did it every time there was a, a slow motion bullet time sequence when time the rules of reality were being bent inside the matrix right and it was like a, a contrast of reality to the matrix it's a fake world and and they used those two uh um i i can't think of the word but it was it, I, I really liked how he did that and so that was the score that i i i really liked yeah you know um <clears throat> I'd forgotten about the music uh, for Matrix and the, that scene where you see the bullet time, and I and I do remember the the music cue from that particular scene and and thinking, wow, that's an interesting choice uh, what mm. what they did there. Yeah. And that scene huh. where he was he was first getting uh, unplugged from the Matrix and he was sitting there next to that mirror, and he was putting his fingers on it and the mirror started going onto his hand. Yeah. Some kind of weird effect, and like that's where he got the idea was the mirroring effect of oh, what's reality wow. and what's not reality. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I, it's just for so simple too. Well, well, What else? Uh, a lot of a lot of Jerry Goldsmith stuff. Oh, there was a movie called Explorers by Steven Spielberg. I uh. really like this. That was. The soundtrack is Jerry Goldsmith again. Such a evokes such a sense of wonder and adventure. He's just really good at, at like if there was no music, it would have had a completely different atmosphere than what he had put into it. And it was I really like that. The Goonies too, another one. I don't know if he did the music for the Goonies or not, but 
That was another mm. one I like the soundtrack for. Um, uh, yeah, most, very cool. Mostly Star Trek, I guess. <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> Star Trek. Uh, no John Williams stuff. Uh, I I like it, but John Williams seems like the guy that everybody likes, and me trying being <laughs> something inside me going against the flow. I just never got into him. Like I, he's does some amazing work, and I really. I really admire it, and he's really accomplished. Um, but it, yeah, like Star Wars is has an amazing soundtrack. Indiana Jones, he has very memorable themes. Uh, but I never picked him as one of my. He's he's in he's in one of my he's in my top list of favorite movie composers. But it didn't it didn't grab me emotionally like the stuff that James Horner or James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith did. And stuff like that. And same thing with Lord of the Rings. Everybody loves that soundtrack. I think it's kind of, even though there are memorable themes there, it seems kind of background to me and not really. I don't know. The music that I tend to like is just, it plucks a string in me and I instantly like it. Like, hmm. It's not something I can really explain. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but Jerry Goldsmith's music does it for me. Uh, Alan Silvestri. Every now and then I'll hear a. Um, a new soundtrack where it just grabs me. I used to really like Hans Zimmer's stuff until he became an overblown, overproduced. You know, just it, like it, Hans Zimmer. Are you, are you not a fan of his uh, of his Batman scores? Uh, not really. Like I, there are parts of them that like from the Nolan films. You mean? Yeah, yeah. There, there are parts of it that I like, and I love how it builds in emotion and tension, and it's really well done. But it's background. If the, if there's gonna be um, a definitive Batman theme, it's gonna be the Danny Elfman one from the original Batman. Oh sure, yeah. <laughs> and I think that yeah. honestly is the greatest movie score theme ever created. <laughs> yeah, it is. I listen to it every line. time. It's just I'm taken away. I, I just started watching the Batman movies again recently, and. I'd play that over and over again. I love that theme song. Yeah, I think it's one of the better ones. Uh, for me, of course, I mentioned Patton as yeah, my all-time favorite. I have to see that. And you say so much about it, I get to see that. Um, uh, the Danny Elfman score for Batman, I agree with you on that. Um, anything done by Alvin Silvestri, or Al Al Alan Silvestri, uh, Back to the Future, uh, Forrest Gump, hmm. um, Predator, like you were talking about. Um, let's see, what are some other big ones? Yeah, I, I kind of caught myself off guard with that, that question too, because mm -hmm. I, I normally have a running list of favorites. Um, it's, it's one of those things you think, I should have answers to this, but there's, <laughs> I don't know, there's so many that it just gets lost in a sea of... You know, I, I, I do like James Horner too, uh, but... If you listen to his score for uh, the second Star Trek movie, I think it is. Yeah, he did second and third. Yeah, if you listen to the the underscore for the second Star Trek movie, and then you go listen to the underscore for Battle Beyond the Stars, and it's like he's ripping off himself because he did really? both soundtracks. And he, he lifts complete package, uh, passages of music out of Battle Beyond the Stars, and he repurposes them for for uh, Star Trek 2 but you know he's entitled you know he's yeah, it's his stuff I guess he's entitled <laughs> steal from yourself it works <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he did a great job with those like 
honestly, the Star Trek movies themselves, doesn't matter who made the music, they, they had some great music in all of them. Yeah. Even, even the, uh, I don't know who wrote it, but the, the uh, original series bits that they reused all the time were really good. They used the, like, the bass guitar and... <laughs> so cool. I love it. Star you remember the uh, Amok Time? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and the music that plays. <laughs> exactly. I think of Jim Carrey every time from Cable Guy <laughs> doing that. When he goes, when they go to the medieval uh, dinner theater yeah. and then they get yeah, selected yeah. for the battle and he's like, sing along with it. Well, um, little, uh, I have a little connection to that. Uh, one of my college professors at UCLA was Gerald Freed, the composer for the Amok Time theme. Oh. And I didn't even know this at the time. I thought, oh, hey, Gerald Freed, cool guy. He's, he's making movie music. I'll learn from him. And then it was like, I bought the Star Trek Suites album series, and it listed yep. the composers for all the different things, and it had the Amok Time theme on there. What? Gerald Freed wrote that? No way. And, <laughs> yeah, sure enough. So That's I sat at the feet of the Amok Time composer. Awesome. And I didn't get in the army. <laughs> uh, how about musicals? This is something, this is another one of my <clears throat> guilty pleasures. Is okay. I enjoy certain musicals, but not all. Really, eh? So. Yeah, musicals is something, uh, that's another thing my dad hated was musicals. <laughs> and that's something I inherited. I don't really like musicals at all. <laughs> and that seems strange to coming from a music lover uh, I don't know what it is I guess when I'm watching a movie I'm in movie mode and I'm just like get on with the story stop singing <laughs> I don't know I I, have, I didn't really grow to appreciate I guess that was mostly when I was a kid you know I just I wanted to watch the movie I hated the songs and I just kind of I never got into it after that and never grew to appreciate it but that uh, hmm. what was, when you when you first posted that on Facebook that you wanted to make a Space Quest 4 metal musical and you posted the video that inspired you. What was that video again? <laughs> that was amazing. I loved that with the yeah. with the city of milk or whatever. And yeah, got it was from the Got Milk uh, guys. Let me look it up here real quick. That had some really good music too. Like it was well done, and I liked it. Yeah, it was that, it was awesome. If that had an album, I would buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking it up so here. I, I can appreciate that people like it, and um, and if I ever had the presence of mind to, to say, you know what, I'm going to try out some musicals. I might start liking it, but I just choose not to. <laughs> I guess. Let's see, was it uh, Milktopia? Is that what yes, they were from? Yes, I think so. Milktopia. Just so, <laughs> yeah, but a Space Quest musical in that style exactly would be just amazing. Yeah, just I, Everything's I'm not... so nonsense and <laughs> nonsensical and and hilarious. Uh, I'm coming up dry on Google with Milktopia. It might be something else, but uh, for everyone who's listening out there, if you haven't seen this video, it's from the the Got Milk uh, people, and it's it's about 20 minutes. It's hilarious. It's the best 20 minutes you'll spend watching anything on YouTube. You just remember uh, the names, the names of the characters. I don't even remember the names. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, as for me, I, uh, so I, I'm not a fan of the musical genre, the the Broadway musical genre, but there are a few that I like. 
Uh, like, for example, I like the original, the original music uh, movie fame. And so years later, there was a touring Broadway troupe doing something called Fame the New Generation. And I went to see it and I, I had to hold my stomach. It was awful. It was awful. <laughs> I thought, oh, hey, from the creators of Fame, this is going to be good. No, it's not. <laughs> One hit wonder. Uh, I think uh, I think my favorite movie musical is the South Park movie. <laughs> the music, the music in that movie is genius. It is very not, good music, and not just because you're from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. No, um, oh South Park, so offensive yet so hilarious. Uh, but the music in that, I the think, the music was, was just... very well done, very, yeah. and it was catchy. And <laughs> now I'm thinking of the Kyle's mom song. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh boy, um, I did like. Uh, there was a musical that came out uh, on Broadway in New York that didn't really get a lot of press. It did win some Tonys. It was called. The Drowsy Chaperone, and um, it, it what what happened? How this came to be was the, some people were having a party, and they were saying they, they, the the idea started with, "Hey, what if we did a musical about a guy in an apartment who's playing an old record from the '40s from his mother's collection? What would that be like? And what what parts? What are the best parts of Broadway that we can steal and put into this?" this musical and they they it was hilarious the music was fun everything you would want to see in a musical in a live musical was done in the drowsy chaperone the name sucks but <laughs> i think that was the point though but they had spit takes tap dancing planes being lowered from the ceiling and it was they had a wow. they had a uh, miscue see what happens in the play is as a guy who lives in an apartment all by himself and he he talks to the audience about his experience, his memory of the drowsy chaperone and some of his, the behind the scenes knowledge. And he would put this album on the turntable and start to play the music and the play would unfold in his apartment. And eventually his apartment would be transformed from an apartment into the, the live set. And at one point in the musical, he turns, he turns the record over and he puts the needle on and he, he walks out, he, he excuses himself. And all of a sudden, uh, a scene from the Mikado comes on and he comes running back in the room and says, oh, oh, sorry, wrong record. You know, so <laughs> everything that you would want to be entertained by in a live musical was done by the Drowsy Chaperone. And I think it's awesome. And, and the, um, the, uh, the soundtrack is pretty fun. Pretty fun. Nice. The okay. Production values on musicals are, can be really impressive. Like, it's not just the music, it's the show, like the spectacle of what's happening. I can, yeah, so, I can appreciate that. Yeah, Lion King is one of those where it's a, a, skept, a spectacle, a skeptical, a spectacle, <laughs> or even Andrew Lloyd Webber, which I'm not a fan of. Uh, his shows are big spectacles, and and people love them. Uh, mm -hmm. But I didn't like the music for either the Phantom of the Opera and any of his stuff, or the Lion King. I just didn't like it. Mm -hmm. But what I did like was the music from Beauty and the Beast. I think that's some of the most finely crafted pieces of music in any musical. Mm -hmm. And I did see it live too. And and oh, you're right, nice. it was a it was a spectacle. That's awesome. Okay. By the way, I've I've uh, 
I, I searched up my YouTube favorites and I found the name of the video. It's called Battle for Melquarius, everybody. Melquarius, that's what it is. Go <laughs> Google that right now. Absolutely funniest 20 minutes you will have in the next, in 2014, <laughs> so far. <laughs> yeah. Probably all oh. of it, I will say that. It's inspired for sure. And the characters <laughs> are just funny, funny. Anyway. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Uh, have you ever done anything bizarre with a musical instrument to see what sounds you could make? Or how about objects that are not musical instruments? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Kind of goes back to what I wanted to experiment with with that Melodyne program with distortion guitars. But what I have done, uh, a little bit more conventional, but rare. For for the Space Quest Four metal medley, I, for the... Uh, which which theme was it? Stowaway theme, or not the stowaway theme, but the landing bay. That's what it was. Made by composed by Rob Atesalp. You said it was Atesalp. Yeah, Atesalp. Right. Atesalp. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rob. <laughs> I've called you Atesalp all my life because I could only read it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing with Mark Siebert. I used to call him Mike Mark Seibert. <laughs> um. Anyway. Easy mistake. <laughs> um. So. What was I just talking about? Uh, anything bizarre with musical instruments to see what sounds right. The uh, landing bay theme to make <clears throat> the sounds of the computers. I was I was playing uh, notes really high up on the fret, on the fretboard of my electric guitar, so it sounded like tinkling computer sounds. Um, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, um, I, I've tried recording different uh, types of non-musical instrument sounds for music, like. I, one time in the basement uh, of the house where I lived with my parents in Nova Scotia, um, our rooms were in the basement. Um, I didn't have very much. I was I was tracking mods back then for music instead of instead of MIDI's and recording instruments with a mic and everything. I was doing mod tracking, which is an older style. It originated on the Amiga. It's like programming mm -hmm. music instead of inputting commands and when music things should do this and that. Which is it? It's kind of it's kind of uh, similar to writing sheet music, I guess, in a way, but in a completely different ball field. Hmm. Um, very interesting. So a lot of video, a lot of uh, computer games, DOS games, started using mod tracking before um, digital audio, like MP3 files in games, was even feasible because the what they are is a series of commands and the instruments are included in the file so it's kind of like a mix of digital and MIDI right um, so that's all I had and I'd try to make sounds like a tambourine I'd get like I'd get like a pair of keys and shake them in front of a cheap computer oh. mic to try to make like a tambourine sound I'd bang on the desk to make percussion sounds one one trick I thought was really neat that I heard someone else do was uh, was slapping your thighs to make it sound like a bodran drum which was oh, really wow. neat and I tried that out, but nothing I've ever finished and released or anything, just little experiments. But, hmm. yeah, some neat things. I, I'd, I'd love to to take the time to experiment. I love experimenting, so I'd love to take the time to experiment and do more. I just don't have much time nowadays. <laughs> you got a family, right? Yeah. Uh, well, for me, we in high school, I found that the oboe double reed mouthpiece fit perfectly into the neck of a French horn. 
and I tried I tried producing some music that way, and it was it was pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but I got some interesting sounds out of it. Um, it's all years about, later. It's all about interesting sounds. It, it doesn't yeah. have to be conventional. Exactly, exactly. So, for you French horn players out there, try an oboe. Give it a shot. A mouthpiece and see what happens. <laughs> uh, years, oh gosh, I think it was in the '80s. Um, Popular Electronics, I think, was the name of the magazine, <clears throat> and they had a contest to see who could create music from sound effects and video games. And I went, oh, this is this is going to be awesome. <laughs> and um, I I had a reel-to-reel tape deck at the time, and I had the Atari 2600, and I just recorded hours and hours of uh, of music and sound effects from the 2600. And um, and then I spliced it together, honest to God, splicing block with taking a little clip and putting it in place and. It was. It took forever mm-hmm. to do this, and if you looked at the the quarter-inch piece of tape, uh, reel-to-reel tape that I had, it looked like it'd been in the war zone. It had so many, so many splices and re-tapes together, and and I submitted that, <laughs> didn't win, but somebody Aww. somebody created music on an Apple II computer. I don't think that was fair. That wasn't the intent of the contest, but <laughs> I was robbed. I tell you. <laughs> That reminds me of, uh, I, I used to have this notion when I was a kid that I wanted to, um, uh, the, the old Windows sounds, sound effects were, were always very musical. I'm like, wouldn't it be neat if someone made a song out of that? And people have actually done it. You can Google it on, or search it up on YouTube. There's a bunch of songs made out of the Windows sound effects. Huh. It's pretty neat. On the, uh, on the, uh, subject of... Um, doing interesting things with musical instruments to get a different sound that reminds me of uh, a story I heard once that Mike Oldfield said where when he was young he tried to make his own guitar at one point he took an acoustic guitar and cut it up into this weird box shape and just absolutely destroyed it <laughs> it didn't work at all <laughs> so you got, you got to you got to make a lot of mistakes before you come before you create something new and that's actually good. So well, now we got computers things. and synthesizers to do all that for us. It's almost yeah. not the same. Push a button and it's, it takes the life yeah. out of it sometimes. Uh, if I came to your house for dinner, what would you serve? I would probably order a pizza because I can't <laughs> cook <laughs> at all. If you forced me to cook, I would give you uh, bologna sandwiches, maybe. And that's awful. I apologize. What's your favorite food? Well, it's funny. I was just thinking about this earlier today. How would I answer this question? My my two favorite foods are chili and pizza. And if somebody could figure out a way to combine those two, they'll become a millionaire. Oh. And that and that's what I would serve you is chili pizza. <laughs> if you came to my <laughs> house. <laughs> Not chili isn't cold. I hate cold pizza. Yeah, it wouldn't be cold. People, it would be. A lot of people like cold pizza. I do not understand it. Cold pizza for breakfast. Everyone around here. Is, says it's the best thing they've ever had, and I don't understand. But chili pizza what, sounds interesting. What if there was a re- uh, chain of restaurants that that's all they served was cold pizza for breakfast? <laughs> Maybe that would be a hit in your town, in they, Manitoba. If they made any money, they'd be extremely rich, because it wouldn't take much money to make that. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. 
<laughs> uh, have you ever been asked for an autograph? No. No. <laughs> That's the, the no shortest, and no, 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 answer no. so far. <laughs> so, uh, hint, hint. Oh, hey, hey, can I have your autograph? Sure. <laughs> how would how would you like me to make it out? <laughs> uh, with a pen, I think would be appropriate. Oh, no, I, I got nothing. Uh, I I was asked for my autograph one time. And it wasn't for music. It was, uh, let's see, I had finally got the chance to design my first game. It was called Return to Ringworld, and it was uh, published by Tsunami, or it was developed by Tsunami Media. Oh, was that the, break- the same guys who did Blue Force with Jim Wall? Yeah, yeah, oh, nice. Yeah, those guys. They were they were a breakoff group from Sierra who tried to recreate the magic, and mm. and we learned the hard way that magic doesn't. You Always can't force it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't force it. That's too bad. Anyway, I I convinced um, uh, Bob Heitman, who was head of development at Tsunami, that I could design the game, and then he said, "Okay, Ken, you're going to design the game." I said, "Okay, how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> where do I start?" He's, yeah, where do I start? So he he was very patient with me, and he he kind of showed me the ropes of game design. I was the I was the designer for Return to Ring World. It got okay reviews. And for my first game, I think I, I did a respectable job. But awesome. uh, it's based on the novels by Larry Niven, who wrote Ringworld and the Known Space paperback series. Okay. Well, we were, were we had hired Larry Niven to do some publicity for the games. And so I attended a book signing uh, session with him at Fry's Electronics down in Orange County. And um, I was kind of standing off to the side and somebody walked up to me and said, well, and who are you? Oh, I said, well, I'm the designer for this game that we're trying to sell at the store here. Oh, can I have your autograph? Oh, okay, sure. And that's the only time I've ever been asked. Someone who didn't even know you. Who <laughs> didn't even know me. Hey, that's and they were buying the game. considering. You may have had one autograph, but it was from someone who didn't even know you. And that's pretty impressive. <laughs> At least it wasn't the IRS, right? <laughs> yeah, you want to give them your autograph. Uh, what is your favorite place to vacation? I don't actually vacation very much. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to always vacation in Ontario because that's where my dad grew up, Mississauga. And um, so we'd go there every summer, pretty much. And that, that was my memory of vacation. Now that I'm grown up, I'm kind of an introvert. I'm kind of just content where I am. I, well, that's in direct contrast to what I've been saying earlier about how boring Winnipeg is <laughs> and how I'd want to leave. But <laughs> um, I, I'd love to, I'd love to try to vacation to someday to British Columbia. I really want to see that. Um, my parents recently went to Mexico for the first time. They said it was amazing. I'd love to deal there. Um, like uh, Cabo, San Lucas, that area? Santa Cruz. Oh, okay. I think. Or something that sounds like that. <laughs> I don't quite remember. I think it's Santa Cruz. That's in Mexico, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I don't, you know, we don't know anything about the southern area up here in the white north. <laughs> well, we've got a Santa Cruz in California, too. Oh. But I don't think they were talking about that. Maybe, no. Yeah. It might. It was something like that. It started with Saint or Santa. Or... <laughs> I'm so sorry, people of Mexico. <laughs> Probably offending a lot of you. 
sorry, I just I'm just ignorant of you of everything. Um, but no, I some, as places I like to visit British Columbia, I like to try Mexico because I said it was so great. But um, I, when I was a kid, I had this fascination with Greece, particularly Crete. I've always wanted to see Crete, Ooh. the island of Crete, and the ruins and stuff. I guess Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Um, uh, inspired that, I guess, because you actually go to Crete in that game, and it looked mm-hmm. really interesting. And that game's, you know, Indiana Jones is all about artifacts and stuff. And I had a, I had a fleeting interest in archaeology at one point. Hmm. Um, New Zealand, I'd love to see. Uh, actually, recently, a coworker of mine went on a five-week vacation to Australia and New Zealand, wow. which was. That was pretty awesome. She went by herself, too, so she didn't have anyone to go with her, which was very admirable. What a waste. <laughs> <laughs> well, she went with, a, a, I guess, a timeshare group or whatever, so there was a group of them, and they got to know each other. But Ah, uh, okay. Um, but, see, she's not a Lord of the Rings fan, so she could not appreciate any of the Lord of the Rings sites <laughs> there, so it just made me mad when she showed me pictures of her visiting Hobbiton and all this and all these places. I'm like, it's such a waste of a trip because you don't even appreciate it. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not that much of a Lord of the Rings fan, guys, but here I am. I want to go there. <laughs> but uh, that was that's another place I'd like to go someday. My wife is the traveler. She wants to go everywhere and visit everywhere. So we'll probably will one of these days. I'll, I'm, I like I say it, but I probably never do it. But with her, we probably will do it someday. So she'll get me out the door one of these days. Hmm. New Zealand. That sounds like fun. Hmm. Uh, my favorite place to vacation is uh, at uh, Yosemite National Park. Hmm. Uh, it's, that's where the Half Dome, you know, the, the yeah, signature. Yeah. But um, to me. It's like visiting heaven. Every time I go there, it's gorgeous. It's it's peaceful. Uh, if you like exercising, there's lots of climbing trails that won't kill you. Um, I just I just love Yosemite and have even fantasized about during my, my retirement I would work as a park ranger at Yosemite. I know working in a retirement sounds odd, but <laughs> it's, well, it's my it's fantasy. Well, relaxing, then it's then it's retiring. <laughs> yeah. With free money given to you. Look at it that way. Uh, as far as uh, where I would love to vacation, I'd love to vacation on the International Space Station. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a few decades, we'll probably be vacationing to the moon or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have $25 million, so that'll, that trip will have to wait. <laughs> Just wait for the my... Google elevator. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Um... Let's see. Tell us about uh, one of your proudest moments. Uh, well, or happiest, or other. Fill in the blank. A lot. Of, I, people would probably expect me to say like the moment I released my first soundtrack, or like King's Quest Three, or you know when I wrote my first song, or I was in a band for a couple of years and we released our first album. Um, but I think it's when my first child was born. I was uh. I was pretty proud that day, and uh, subsequently my second child. And I was proud of my wife because she had to take, she had to go through two C sections because, oh, so four C sections. So I was proud of her for going through that. She wasn't 
um, very excited about that notion. Not not that any woman would be anyway during labor. <laughs> right. But right. Uh, anyway. Um, sure. Being uh, becoming a parent certainly is yeah, is a proud moment for all of us. When my uh, daughter first went to school, that was really like it's it's the cliche things. But when you become a family man, it's really it it really does hit you that way. <laughs> like I never thought it would. You know, when you're a kid, you're like. You think it's all cliche and stuff, but that stuff all happens to you when you get a family. Yep, I I feel the same way about my my wedding date and then my fatherhood date and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I recommend it if you're so inclined because it'll uh, it'll change your life. Absolutely, make make you a better person. It definitely both uh, being married and being a father has changed my life in a hundred million different ways for the better. Uh, one of the proudest moments I have, and this is, I know we always get back to Space Quest 4, <laughs> but uh, back when Sierra was doing these games, there was very, I, I, don't, I can't think of any game-oriented magazines at the time. Maybe there were, um, but they were general computer enthusiast magazines, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Oh no, there was Computer Gaming World. Uh, they were they were around at the time. So there were very few game magazines and it was not uh, a common thing for a game to be reviewed by a critic. Well, PC Magazine would review PC software on a regular basis and they would feature it in the back of the magazine. And they had reviewed uh, Space Quest Four, and they gave it really glowing glowing comments uh glowing review and they even mentioned the music as mm. being oh it it even right down to the copying the style of john williams or gustav holtz and uh <laughs> for me to get complimented in print like that was was uh just i was very proud that day i didn't keep the magazine unfortunately and Aww. i don't think if you've Googled it, you'd be able to find it. But. It's, it's nice when your work gets noticed like that, especially um, in a medium where it doesn't get a lot of attention. Like, that feel, like music in a video game doesn't really get a lot of attention, really. So when someone mentions it, that's that's definitely a high note. Yeah. So what is your day job? I am a support worker at a company working with people with intellectual disabilities oh wow yeah so you've never talked about that in, in anything that I've I've picked up on no I don't think I've mentioned it uh, I don't really mention it much at all really what was it that drew you to that career choice uh, well I don't really consider it a career choice I'm not going to spend the rest of my life here um it's it's something I, I never planned to, to start. I mean, now that I've now that I'm doing it, I love it and it's very rewarding really. You know, the guys I work with are are just awesome. Like it's it's just really rewarding to be able to help them and stuff. Like there's we do classes and stuff where we teach life skills and and I get to teach a music class, so I teach them oh, wow. music history and stuff and it's all subjects that they're interested in and they they give the topic and then I'll take the topic and teach it. And and then there's other things we do, like, yeah, we just spend, you know, spend time with them and enriching their lives. It's really rewarding. Uh, I never planned to do it. In fact, 
couple of years ago before I got into it, I never saw myself doing anything like that. I wasn't interested in it at all. <laughs> but now that I've done it, it's it's one of those other things that changes your life and makes you look at things a little differently. Um, I was I wanted to get into either music or computer programming, and then I got a job at a cell phone repair store, and they don't they also repair like. Um, laptops and iPads and computers and things so that was right up my alley because I did the, all that stuff as a kid I took my computer apart I, I bought separate parts online I built my own computer that I'm using now for recordings studio recording I'm, so I love computers it's my second love next to music and I worked at this cell phone repair store for two months and then quit because I hated it <laughs> just it was a perfect example of 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 work taking something you love and doing it for money makes you absolutely despise it <laughs> and I and like if I stay if I if I continue to work here I am going to hate this and I don't want to hate it so I quit <laughs> and luckily I managed to get a job at, at uh, this company which a friend of mine my music partner at the time actually uh, worked for and he put in a word for me and got me a job there and it was it's it's challenging at times, but uh, especially with the company I work for, some of the some of the uh, um, they they call them supported individuals now. There's a new politically correct term every year. Once it was clients, <laughs> another one was uh, participants, and now it's now it's uh, supported individuals. Um, but because my company deals with those who are on probation and have like a, a record, mm. so so they have. So they have like tendencies to do things that you got to watch, and it's a bit, a little bit, a little bit more. You got to keep your eye on things. But uh, despite that, it's been really rewarding. Um, but yeah, I don't consider it a career choice. I don't plan on staying here. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to be in this field until my plan is, and you know, plans never work out like we said before. Until I, 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 do, I can do something with music in some capacity. That's my ultimate goal. But whatever happens, happens. Like, I don't really have a plan. I'm kind of just going Scott Murphy style, seat of my pants. <laughs> as far as him with game design, me with Scott life. Scott Murphy style. <laughs> Another music video I can't wait to see. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, but, wow. um, yeah, well, see, happens, it sounds like it sounds like you, um, can see what you do improving the lives of other people and of course that's going to be gratifying uh, yeah so I, i'm very i have a lot of admiration for people who do things like this as their as their pay job mm -hmm. because like you said not everybody sets out in life to work with supported individuals mm -hmm. or you know mentally challenged people that need you know, support from society. Yeah, it's, it's and, something people avoid. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And and yet, there's a group of people who get into it and just love it for the very reasons you just said. Yeah. Very cool. <clears throat> well, my day job, uh, I've been a game producer for over about 20 years now, and I made the switch this this year over to managing online poker and online gambling for Bally here oh. in Las Vegas. I live in Las Vegas now. And uh, all the years that I spent 
working in the online community for Rift and a couple other MMOs that I was a part of uh, really prepared me perfectly for this because uh, online gambling, I think it's legal in Canada, I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure, actually. I have no yeah. idea. Um, uh, uh, online gambling is growing and it's now legal in New Jersey and Nevada and other states are considering it and it's just going to explode in the coming years and I've always gravitated to toward parts of the industry that are on the edge and moving forward you know ahead of everything else mm. and so online online gambling is um, it's kind of that for me right now and we're using the latest technology we use you know um, scalable uh, network technology and there's a lot of a lot of other technical mumbo jumbo that I'm not going to bore you with but that's my day job that's what pays the bills interesting and, all of my evenings and weekends are spent working on that space venture project that we talked about. Yeah, what a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, uh, it's pretty interesting. I never would have thought that about you. Just that it's weird when you you see these people who uh, you know you you've, you get to know online and then they say what they do and you just never would have thought that in a million years that <laughs> some people would do the things that they do. Like, but it makes sense. Considering, you know, like you, you had a history with online gaming, so it fits perfectly. That's it's, it's interesting. Okay, uh, so you talked about, a little bit about what professional choices you would make. Uh, to kind of solidify the thinking. Tell us what would be your profession if you could make that choice today, right now. Quit, quit this awesome day job and go do something really cool for money. Um. Cool. I have a hard time deciding if it would be music performing or music production. Whether I'd be on stage or whether I'd be just making it. Because um, sometimes I feel like all I can do is perform and I'm not good enough at composing or producing. And other times I'll be like, well, when you're composing, there's no rules and there's no time, well, there's time restraints, but you can make a mistake and you can go right back and edit it. Whereas live, you make a mistake, it's it's locked to time. Hmm. But um, something with music, I've always wanted to, since I started playing guitar for the first time. Uh, and then my, to more specific, I, I always wanted to do game soundtracks, like at Sierra. That was my dream job. Hmm. But um, who knows? Especially with the industry tra changing so much every day, it's not about the same things anymore that you loved when you were a kid, you know. But with the, all these Kickstarter things happening, it might even yeah happen. That I was way. just like, going to go there. I was talking about indie projects indie, and Kickstarter. Indie is very, very interesting to me. I've kind of abandoned almost all AAA games now because. They've lost the magic, and indie has that magic. That same magic that was there in the 90s and 80s when we grew up with games. These are the people who grew up with games, and they're making games for them. And it's So I'm really big in the indie scene right now. I think it's really interesting. And it's really uh, beneficial for people like me who want to get into making music for games. It's a really easy place to start because it's... it's uh, you know, if you have something out there and you get noticed, someone snags you up. It's a lot easier than, you know, trying to send your stuff in to a AAA publisher or developer <laughs> and, you know, that'll you need to go through, like, probably education and stuff. But this is a group of people who do it in their basement. 
Yeah. And I do this in my basement. I'm literally sitting in my basement right now in <laughs> a closet in the basement where all my computer and recording equipment is. Huh. Uh, I don't have a basement or else I'd be in there too. <laughs> but uh, uh, touching on the indie thing real quick, uh, I mean, it was inevitable that there'd be an indie game development uh, industry. I mean, it, it's happened with everything. It's happened with music. It's happened with mm-hmm. videos and movies and even television-like stuff that's on YouTube. It was inevitable that game production was going to go that way. And it looked like the Garage Game Torque Engine was going to be the one that was going to go there. But Unity just snapped up that whole hmm. that whole crowd. And and we're using Unity on uh, on Space Venture, and um, right. it's it's pretty darn cool. Pretty Everyone's, darn cool. Everyone praises. I think Phoenix Online also uses it. Oh, for uh, yeah, look. cognition and stuff hmm. that they're doing with with Jane Jensen and their Gabriel Knight remake. I think that's all Unity. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of professional companies that are, are grabbing it too because it's just so easy to make a multi-platform uh, yeah, product. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was especially with stuff like. The Unreal tech is so expensive to get the development kit for, and it's such a cheaper, portable alternative. It works for everything. Well, now Unity isn't without its flaws. Uh, I'm not a big fan of their uh, of their version control stuff. But okay, I've never worked I, with it, so this, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. But uh, I think there is a way for you to hook up something like Subversion or uh, some of the other version control packages with Unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are we're getting the geeky tech stuff now but uh, <laughs> yeah unity is pretty good it's good for prototyping i've heard people say that they'd rather develop on another cross-platform thing that's open source but um hmm. yeah unity seems to be where it's at for the for the indie crowd as far as uh, if i was to choose a career choice uh at this point i, I would have chosen in fact i even had this i, I faced this fork in the road uh when I was at Sierra, um, I think I've mentioned before that salaries were not the greatest at Sierra, and so I was looking to move to another area of uh, the company that had a uh, had more headroom in their pay scale. Hmm. And one of those was becoming a programmer, an engineer. And I, I was told years later, after I had left Sierra to go strike out on my own, uh, that had I stayed, I would have been able to make the transition over a programmer and probably would have been able to uh, to do that. And it, it's something that still interests me. As I said earlier, I, I learned JavaScripting this year, and and I'm looking to learn C sharp, um, so I can help on the on the space venture game. But I wish I would have made that choice way back there uh, to to stick around and go into yeah. on the programming. Hindsight. Yeah, hindsight. Uh, let's see. Uh, hang on a sec. I'm just going to stop my recording and then continue it again. Just so that yeah, the audio we're, doesn't... We're getting up on two and a half hours, aren't we? Wow. Okay. I just want to make sure that what we got so far is... We got it's it. Preserved. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, well, we're coming up to the end anyway. Um, let's see here. Hey, okay. If you were a superhero, we talked about superheroes earlier. What would be your theme song and what would be your catchphrase? I not as I said, I'm not good at coming up with titles or names or anything, so I'm not gonna be creative and I'm just gonna say Batman, the Danny Elfman Batman theme song, and my catchphrase would be I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is his catchphrase, isn't it? I'm Batman. I'm Batman. But not not uh, Christian Bale style. 
I'm Batman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, my theme song, if I was a superhero, I would choose Yakety Sax. <laughs> it's the Benny Hinn oh. theme song for the saxophone. <laughs> yeah. That'd be my theme song. And my catch, my catchphrase would be, it's time to make some jerky. <laughs> Just totally random. There's a, so. there's a game series in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to make some jerky. The two guys uh, next big seller right there. Yeah. I actually tried to propose that to Mark, and he says, "Oh, I got a, I got a different catchphrase for Ace. Smells like money, because <laughs> he's a you know he's a yeah, plumber. Plumber, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Smells like money. Okay, uh, let's see here. Other than music, do you have any other hobbies? Uh, yes, I like. I mentioned earlier, I dabble in programming. Um, I tr- I uh, attempted to make a remake of King's Quest 2 once with uh, the SCI engine, Sierra's SCI engine um, that Brian Favigiano had reverse engineered and created SCI Studio from. Um, Brian Favigiano was one of the first people way back to start reverse engineering Sierra stuff. That's when the AGI fan games started and the SCI fan games. And we started seeing all these tons of games like Time Quest pop up because people reverse engineered this stuff. Uh, he's actually completely left the scene and he, he's made a really popular indie game now called Retro City Rampage. Hmm. Which is like a Grand Theft Audio meet audio. Grand Theft Auto meets meets uh, NES. It's like Grand Theft Auto on the NES. Huh. It's and it's really it's all open world and it's limited palette, old sound effects and everything. It's pretty fun. Um, I went way off topic. I'm surprised Hobbies. how much I do that because really in person I'm kind of a quiet person. Like I don't talk very much, so this is unprecedented people. Ah, well I'm honored to experience you going off topic. Oh, I I feel sorry for you that <laughs> you have to endure it. <laughs> and everyone who's listening right now. Of course trolls can just edit this all out probably, so yeah. So what was the question again? Uh, hobbies. Hobbies. Pro- yeah. Dabbled in programming. Um, have you ever watched a recently released movie called Indie, Indie Game the Movie? I've, I'm aware of it, but I haven't seen it. It's, it's, it's very good. Very well done. Um, kind of a documentary on how the indie game scene works and the pitfalls the, and the successes and and that really, in, and I just watched it recently, and it kind of inspired me all over again. Every now and then, I get this spurge, is like, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna start programming, I'm gonna make a best-selling indie game, and <laughs> get rich. And then that, I saw that movie, and all these people became millionaires overnight. And I'm like, oh, that's gonna be me now. And like, I know it's not going to, but I, I fool around with it every now and then. So I, I, eventually, I'll get to the point where I can release something, and just see what happens. <laughs> I'd love to be like, I, I have a a very strong interest in programming and I want to get into it more but I just don't have the time it's rough it's one of those there's actually a, a game development uh, package that doesn't require programming but it does require you to think like a programmer it's called Game Salad and mm. I recommend it because you won't have to know how to write any code you won't have to know any syntax everything is drop down menus and I think you can create uh, create a pretty solid game using That's Game Salad yeah. Yeah, I, I've dabbled with 
I dabble with a lot of like Adventure Game Studio with with um, like the you know the Wajedai games like the Blackwell games and and Gemini Ru and the ones that have come out recently by Wajedai. I'll use Adventure Game Studio. The King's Quest remakes by AGDI used AGS. A lot of indie games are using AGS now. I've dabbled in that. I've dabbled in. Uh, I just like the idea of programming and figuring out how things work. I love to figure out how things work. So I love deep going into the code and, and, and coming up with ways to make things work and stuff. Besides programming, I like... My dad is actually really good at uh, artwork and graphic design. He used to do... Um, he used to work at a sign shop. And actually he does now again. He started working at a sign shop again. But he used to paint signs. And some of them are still up in Fredericton that he used to work on. So I think I've inherited a bit of that ability. He used to do pencil and charcoal drawings of portraits that he'd give to people, which were really nice. And I started, whenever I start dabbling in it, I, I, I can tell there's something there, but it, it's one of those things where you just need the time to put into it. That um, single I released, Uncontrolled Reentry, I designed the, the album artwork for that myself oh, out wow. of Photoshop filters and, and a bunch of techniques I saw online to how to create things. So Very it's cool. like something's there. If I cultivate it, nurtured it, I'd probably, I'd probably be able to do something with it. But it's just interest in time. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> programming, music, graphics a little bit. Nothing else really. <laughs> I spend all my time doing one thing. Really, I, I don't do a lot of other things. I probably should, so I have other things to focus my mind on. But. Hmm. Uh, let's see. My hobbies. Well, um, I I love the science of cooking. Hmm. Uh, not not necessarily, you know, being a an all star chef or anything. I love to learn how heat and the chemicals in the in the recipe come together to form the end product. And so I've hmm. I've been been reading two or three books recently. One is Cooks Illustrated: The Science of Cooking or Science of Good Cooking. Um, and then, Big uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, uh, a gourmet chef released a microwave cookbook and it's really thick. And wow. so I've been going through that to see how microwave cooking is different from regular heat cooking and, and how it, it changes the way, uh, the way food is, is, uh, prepared. And then, uh, I also in the middle of reading a book called the four hour chef by Tim Ferriss, who, uh, his his basic premise is based around the concept of the minimum effective dose. That's that's hmm. how he lives his life. That's how he does everything in his life. And less he, is more. He, yeah, less is more. And uh, he says you only need like six different spices, just these few ingredients, and then here's the thousand recipes you can make from just these these very few things. <laughs> so um, I'm I'm kind of an amateur chef and I, I'm doing okay but uh, I'm not going to get my own Food Network TV show anytime <laughs> soon so that's one of my hobbies um, nice yeah uh, I made some some killer uh, jambalaya last year that with uh, chicken and shrimp and all the ingredients that you, you put in that and uh, it was my wife is very pleasantly surprised because she, she's the gourmet chef in this family <laughs> well yeah. if she likes it then you know you're doing yeah <laughs> exactly uh, so I, I can't really think of any other hobbies. Most most of the things that I do are to educate myself in technology or a field of 
the uh, profession field that I'm currently in. So uh, if I'm playing games, I'm usually playing the games that are related to what I'm working on. So I've been getting to know online poker mm. quite extensively, all the different kinds of ways of doing that. When I was working for Tryon, I, I, I played every MMO out there, including the really terrible ones. <laughs> so um, a lot of my hobbies are just self-education. Hmm. In fact, That's now that funny. I think about it, most of the things that I spend, uh, that I that I do in my spare time, are actually to educate myself in in things that I'm interested in. Like I learned all my computer knowledge completely self-taught, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned how to program in BASIC all by myself, and then later in C. Uh, and I was just reading and reading and reading, and I'm just a voracious learner. And I think that's probably it. That's probably my my biggest mm. hobby is learning something new. So yeah, I'm, I don't I don't really like reading very much. My wife's a big book person, and I just hate reading books. But I do like to go in and, and learn stuff, like you said. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've recently gotten into uh, the original Unreal game. Uh, and it's it's whole level editor and stuff. Like, I love taking just to, I, I I it's kind of, again it's that musician slash ADD thing. I, I go from one thing to the next, one project to the next, and I almost never finish anything, but I'm learning a bit more each time. And it's just fun, curiosity, hmm. you know. Yeah, it's part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're getting at the end here. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a question that you would have liked to have asked that didn't get asked? Uh, yes. Where can I go to buy your music online? And I would say <laughs> brandonbloom.com. No. Um, <laughs> brandonbloom.com. I can't really think of anything, honestly. Um, uh, you know, I, I haven't spent time... Uh, well, first of all, I've never done mixdowns of my music. I've always relied upon the MIDI technique for mm-hmm. creating the in-game music. I've never actually sat down in front of a mixing board. Maybe this is a lesson I can take from you, is, is how to mix down music. And so that's why you don't see a finished product uh, available through iTunes or through some of the others, uh, because I just haven't had the time to learn how to do that and then to sit down and do it. I've got a book, mm-hmm. The Art of Mixing, but I haven't... Great I haven't book. Cr- I got that then, as a graduation present when I finished my audio production course, six-month course. It's all they have here in Winnipeg. Never come here. (laughs) (laughs) The the next best one is a two-year course in uh, Ontario, and it's what everyone goes to, apparently. We just have a... There's nothing here. Anyway. Yeah, so that's... uh, I'd like to to do that one of these days. Uh, I I guess that's it. Uh, There's a few other questions here that I left out because we're time constraints. It's two and a half hours into this into this, uh, this question and answer podcast. thing. <laughs> yeah. I think we're going to spread this out this into up. a bunch of episodes again. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Lots of material. I, I owe you a Coke. <laughs> All right, well, Brandon, it's just been a swell uh, two and a half hours chatting with you, getting to know you more. Absolutely. Just the two of us, finally. Yeah. Instead of having interference from, you know, people like Trolls and Frederick and Scott. Even though they're the reasons we're talking right now. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks, guys. Yeah, for uh, forcing us to get together and chat yeah. and ask questions. Well, this has been absolutely great. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Same here. Same here. Fun.
do it again sometime. Yeah, hopefully less than two and a half hours next time. Yeah. <laughs> guys, oh, really, don't stop on my account. Um, you guys are filling out time nicely. Uh, which uh, makes it doubly sad that it seems we have come to the end of this uh, season or cycle or galactic swing around or whatever you guys call it down here on Earth. Um, the last bit I have of the famous Ken Allen and Brandon Bloom shows. Um, we're all out of uh, commentaries. We're all out of uh, fireside chats by the uh, New Year Starlights. Um, so, um, yeah, that's it. Um, I do want to thank the two gentlemen for, uh, uh, you know, uh, contributing so much to uh, this podcast uh, over this, uh, what's what's now been uh, quite a long run of episodes, actually. Uh, and, and these guys have been very good sports, and they've uh, handed their stuff in on time, and uh, um, uh, Brandon has gone above and beyond by also uh, providing me with some uh, musical cues, uh, particularly those you've heard from the uh, Space Quest Tandy games, the three voice games, the ones that sound like little bleeps and bloops. Uh, and, and Brandon's just a really nice guy. He just jumps right in there and says, okay, do you need something? And it's, it, I, I have it in my email box like 30 minutes later. It's great. And uh, Ken Allen also has gone above and beyond duty uh, by, uh, you know, tossing in the odd Easter egg here and uh, giving me uh, quite lengthy uh, commentaries, which are all very, very uh, interesting and scintillating. And, uh, well, actually, now that I'm in a teasing mood, I've been teasing this whole podcast, um, actually, next episode, we're just going to get one more little Easter egg in from Mr. Ken Allen, because uh, shortly before uh, New Year's Eve, uh, he uh, quite impromptuly... Uh, recorded a little tiny morsel of information and uh, kind of a tribute to what it's like to work with Scott Murphy. So uh, tune in again in two weeks' time to uh, to hear that. And um, actually, that's uh, that's it for this long-as-while-in-the-making episode of the Space Quest Historian. Um, be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time to get the full inside scoop on the uh, unfinished fanfiction novels, as well as the uh, ill-fated uh, Lone Voyager novel that Leonard and I co-wrote. Um, you'll be hearing excerpts from uh, both that and the two unfinished Space Quest 3 and Space Quest 5 novels, as well as the story behind Daniel's ill-fated Space Quest 2 novel. This one was even more ill-fated than Lone Voyager, because you can actually download and read Lone Voyager. Uh, this one... Uh, Daniel's Space Quest 2 novel was actually completed, but never surfaced, and you'll find out why in the next episode. So uh, please hop on to SpaceQuestHistorian.com to find out how to subscribe to this podcast, and uh, just as importantly, if you've got anything to add to the matter, how to get your two cents in, don't be shy. I'm thinking maybe I could steal a trick from my pal over at the Upper Memory Blog podcast, maybe do a mailbox type thing. So uh, you guys just sent me a voicemail, there's details on the website on how to do that. Uh, just send me a voicemail on something you want me to elucidate on, or if you just want to share something with the world and the known universes, I'll put it on here and I'll offer my two buck a sense on the subject um and uh that reminds me actually uh the upper memory block is a fantastic podcast you really should check that out it's over at umbcast.com um it's uh, really great uh, has a lot of adventure game related stuff and uh, some some stuff that's not adventure game related but it's uh it's a really good podcast nonetheless and another podcast i think that holds a lot of promise even though it's only one episode in at the moment is the point and click times which is a generalized podcast about everything adventure game related. Just adventure games. And the dude has this really pleasant voice and demeanor, which kind of reminds me of Clint from uh, Lazy Game Reviews. Uh, so uh, please check out the Point and Click Times over at, surprise, pointandclicktimes.com. 
And uh, while we're at it, if you're into video reviews, uh, here's my last recommendation. You should check out Ikifu. No, really, that is his name. Ikifu, the Scotsman on a mission. And uh, his mission is to review old adventure games in his series Point and Quickie reviews. Uh, so you can go to ikifu.com. That's I-K-I-K-O-O-K-F-U. I can't even read that. I-K-I-F-O-O.com for that. And um, despite having a weird name, the dude is really hilarious and he needs more viewers, in my opinion. So uh, go, 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 for heaven's sake, go. It's, uh, well, it's just as well you're leaving anyway, because uh, I think we're about done here. So, um, in summary, send me your voice files, subscribe to the show, learn how to swim, write a book, go have sex with someone, fight intergalactic corruption with your team of superhero friends from distant galaxies. Hey, I'm not asking much, but I will, will see you lazy fuckers around the Chrono stream. Take care. this song yeah oh bloody love this do you remember the 21st night of September life was changing the mind of pretenders while chasing the clouds away our hearts were ringing In the key that our souls were singing As we danced the night Remember How the stars saw the night away Baia Sally do you remember Baia Dancing in September Baia Never was a cloudy day yeah.